My name is Derek Bros. For the last 10 years, I've worked as an investigative journalist, hosting a radio show, writing books, and producing numerous documentaries about the realities of child trafficking, the dangers of technology, and indigenous struggles. Now, I aim to uncover whether there exists a network of individuals and institutions which ties these issues together. Many researchers posit the existence of an international cartel which covertly manipulates world events for their own benefit. Are these claims simply fantasy and paranoid delusion, or is there truly an agenda to subvert humanity to the demands of the pyramid of power? Chapter 11, The Banking Cartel Nearly every aspect of the pyramid of power which has been mentioned thus far is touched by the banking industry. Whether we are talking about the education system, the prison system, Hollywood, or the average person storing their savings in a bank, the world of finance pervades every aspect of our lives. The influence of the banks can be seen via loans, investments, or simply holding money. The fact is that our lives are impacted by the banks directly and indirectly every single day. We begin tonight with another staggering report on inflation. A hike sure to be felt in the wallets of American borrowers. The bank is battling to tamp down on raging inflation. The index shows inflation rose. More experts are increasing the likelihood of a recession in the near future. The purpose of this investigation will be to briefly explore the history of banking and the role the banks and the people behind them have played in shaping our world over the last centuries. Because of the nearly universal use of banking institutions, it is of vital importance that we understand how the bankers influence our lives and whether we prefer to allow this influence to exist in the first place. We will also examine the latest trends in banking and how they signal the shift of our world into a new digital era. First. Let's take a look at the history of banking itself. Archaeological findings indicate record-keeping of transactions and the use of grain and animals as a form of currency as far back as 5000 BC in Sumeria, as well as the ancient Greece and Roman periods. Around this time, it was common for wealth to be stored at temples and palaces of different kingdoms. Much of what was stored at these temples was gold and coins of varying size and metals. Wealthy aristocrats would store their coins and jewels in the basements of temples, which often made temples a target during wars and invasions. Documents have been discovered which detail how banking should be handled, including the Code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian legal text estimated to have been completed between 1755 and 1750 BC, which deals with many topics, including loans. However, it was the Holy Roman Empire which began to lay the foundation for a more modern form of banking. The Roman Empire began to formalize the administrative aspect of banking, including greater regulation of banking institutions. With the fall of the empire, the Roman banking system came to an end. Around the 12th century, we began to see the emergence of merchant banks, commercial banks operated by wealthy Italian families from Florence, Venice, and Genoa. Throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, banks began to emerge in Italy, Spain, Holland, and Germany. It was around the 17th century where we start to see banking concepts such as fractional reserve banking, a system of banking now used all over the world which allows banks to hold only a small portion of the funds deposited by their customers while they invest the rest of the money into various projects and financial schemes. It was also around this point that the wealthy merchant class began to store their gold with goldsmiths in London. These goldsmiths would hold the gold in private vaults and charge a fee for the service. 
The goldsmiths would then issue receipts for the quantity and purity of the metal. This would eventually lead to the goldsmiths lending out money and the further development of modern banking. The Rothschild Banking Dynasty The merchant banking family steadily grew in wealth and power. One of the most powerful families was the infamous Rothschilds. The family was led by a German-Jewish man named Amschel Moses Rothschild. Amschel lived in the Jewish ghetto of Frankfurt, Germany. Amschel would have eight children, including Meyer Amschel Rothschild, the founder of the Rothschild banking dynasty, and often touted as the founding father of international finance. Like his father, Meyer Rothschild was involved in currency exchange. The younger Rothschild secured an apprenticeship under Jacob Wolf Oppenheimer, learning foreign trade and expanding his knowledge of currency exchange. He would eventually become a dealer in rare coins and the personal supplier of coins to Crown Prince Wilhelm of Hesse. In 1769, Meyer Rothschild gained the title of Court Jew or Court Factor, and his business would expand to include other royal accounts across Europe. The true wealth and influence of the Rothschild family would be seen in Meyer Rothschild's children, specifically his five sons. In what has been labeled the Five Arrows approach, Meyer sent his five sons to different parts of Europe to establish banking institutions. This spreading of Rothschild influence and wealth has greatly impacted Europe and the world at large. Eldest son Amschel Meyer took over duties for the Frankfurt Bank. Salomon Meyer Rothschild handled the banking business in Vienna, Austria. Kalman Karl Meyer Rothschild established a bank in Naples, Italy. Jacob Meyer de Rothschild became a banking giant in Paris, France. This bank funded Napoleon and became one of the leading banks in European finance. The French Rothschild banking family funded France's major wars and colonial expansion. Finally, Nathan Meyer Rothschild established N.M. Rothschild & Sons and turned it into one of Europe's most powerful banking institutions. In 1835, he secured a contract with the Spanish government giving him the rights to the mines in southern Spain and establishing a near monopoly on mercury in Europe. The five brothers coordinated their activities across Europe and developed a network of shippers, couriers, and spies. It is often claimed that this private intelligence service enabled Nathan to receive news of Duke Wellington's victory against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo a full day ahead of the government's official messengers. This advanced knowledge reportedly allowed the Rothschilds to profit off the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo by using this information to speculate on the London Stock Exchange and make a vast fortune, estimated to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars at the time. The Rothschild family archives acknowledge that Nathan did indeed have early knowledge of Napoleon's defeat and did use the information to make a large profit. However, they dispute the amount of money made, claiming that at most, Nathan profited a couple million dollars. Regardless, it's quite obvious that the Rothschild family has played a major role in the development of international banking in the last couple hundred years. One powerful example of this is the partnership between Nathan's N.M. Rothschild and & Sons and the Bank of England, the Central Bank of the UK. The fact that central banks and national governments were indebted to the Rothschild family should illustrate the power they wielded. The relationship between the Bank of England and the Rothschilds continued when Nathan Meyer's grandson, Alfred de Rothschild, became a director of the Bank of England in 1869. In order to gain a deeper understanding of the role played by the bankers, we need to understand the central banking system, especially the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve and Central Banking 
When it comes to the United States Federal Reserve System, once again, G. Edward Griffin was one of the earliest journalists to report on the factual history of the founding of America's central bank. In 1994, Griffin published his widely acclaimed book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. I wanted to produce a film on inflation. All I knew about inflation was that what we were being told, as usual, was, was not true. And uh, so I started to gather books and things and did some interviews. And, and I was going to produce a documentary film on the cause of inflation. And I discovered that it was uh, an institution called uh, the Federal Reserve System. It was a central bank, as they like to call it. I didn't know much about it, except that's, I knew that those were the culprits because they were creating money uh, literally as they wished. There was no limit to the amount they could create, it seemed. So they were creating money faster than goods and services were being created. And if you put the money supply ahead of the actual goods and services that are available for it, why well, that inflates the or deflates the value of the money and inflates the prices. And I decided that this topic was much bigger than I had ever dreamed in the early days. Every time I learned something, but open, open up another door to another room and you go into that room and say, gee, I didn't know about this. And there are three more doors in the back of that room and you open up each one into another room. And the thing grew and grew until finally, I realized that this topic of money and the effect it has on civilization, the effect it has on a culture the effect it was having on my future and, the ch and my children's future was profound. And I had no knowledge of it as a young person. I decided I've got to write a, a book about this. Well, I never considered myself a writer. I was a public speaker, right? I gave speeches. I don't write books. I don't know how to do that. Well, but I decided I had to write a book. So I started to write the book that probably more people have heard about rather than me. I mean, my name, the book is more well-known as The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. In his book, Griffin outlines a meeting between influential bankers and politicians at Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. The discussions taking place at the meeting eventually led to the creation of the Federal Reserve. While Griffin was not the first to report on the secret meeting, at the time of publication of his book, much of the mainstream press dismissed the idea as conspiracy theory. Regardless, even the Federal Reserve itself has come to acknowledge and commemorate the meeting. The meeting was organized by U.S. Senator Nelson Aldridge of Rhode Island. Aldridge's daughter Abigail was married to John D. Rockefeller Jr., son of Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller Sr. As mentioned in Chapter 1, Big Education, in 1903, Aldridge helped establish the Rockefeller's General Education Board, which allowed that family to reshape the trajectory of public schooling. Aldridge also led the efforts to reform the monetary system into a mechanism which would allow the bankers to gain even greater influence over the economy, and thus, the people. Aldrich served as the chair of the National Monetary Commission to study the causes of the Panic of 1907. In this role, he drew up the Aldrich Plan, which would eventually influence the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 and the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. However, before the passing of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, Aldridge was meeting with an elite group of bankers at the Jekyll Island Club in 1910. Regular members of the club included the banking houses of the day, the Morgans, Rockefellers, Warburgs, and Vanderbilts. In fact, the Federal Reserve website says it was likely John Pierpont Morgan, otherwise known as J.P. Morgan, who arranged for the group to use the club for the meeting. 
Those in attendance include A. Piot Andrew, the U.S. Assistant Treasury Secretary, Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York, Henry P. Davison, a senior partner of J.P. Morgan Company, Benjamin Strong Jr., an associate of J.P. Morgan and president of Bankers Trust Co., and Paul Warburg of the Warburg Banking family. It was at this meeting that a plan was hatched to introduce a central banking system which the banks would own. This was the establishment of the banks into a banking cartel with full control of the money supply. Once the men in attendance had their orders, they returned to their spheres of influence to bring the vision to life. Within three years of the Jekyll Island meeting, the United States had a new central bank and the era of inflation and an ever-increasing income tax began. 100 years after the establishment of the Federal Reserve System, journalist James Corbett released his documentary, The Century of Enslavement. In his documentary, Corbett expands upon the work done by G. Edward Griffin to show that the same banking families who have been controlling finance for centuries are the same people controlling the private banks who actually control the Federal Reserve System. The power to print the money is control over nations. The person who is, or the people who are ultimately in control of the money supply are the ones that are dictating the policies of that country. And I think the prime example of this is the the drive to create the third central bank in U.S. history, the Federal Reserve, back at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, because uh, it was recognized by the people that there was a serious problem. Bank runs uh, were becoming uh, more and more destabilizing of the economy. Something had to be done. So the bankers got in front of that parade and conspired in an open conspiracy that is part of the historical record now that we know about on Jekyll Island in 1910 to formulate the idea that would eventually be passed as the Federal Reserve Act. And it is no coincidence that the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913. Immediately, we, we got an income tax and America was driven, driven into World War I. World War I was financed with help from uh, the new monetary functions of the newly created Federal Reserve, and which greatly expanded monetary control over the foreign policy decisions of any would-be administration. Of course, Woodrow Wilson was not exactly an unwilling participant in that drive for war, although he claimed to be. Um, but at any rate, it was the Federal Reserve's consolidation of control in 1913 that made the U.S. entry into World War I in 1917 possible. The obvious takeaway from this is that the centralized control over the not just the economy, but the monetary system itself that a central bank like the Federal Reserve represents, the mechanism by which that control is affected. So in order to break that control, one would have to break the central bank. It is the central bank itself which has control and the power over the money supply to print money uh, in the interest of this agenda, but not in the interest of that agenda, in the interest of the agenda of the people who have their power, the power over the printing press. That is the key to the control over the system as it exists. And that's why it's so incredibly important that people understand something about the monetary system and the way that money is created in the current system. In the decades since the release of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a worldwide movement exposing the Federal Reserve System sprung up around the United States, largely thanks to two presidential campaigns by former U.S. Congressman Ron Paul of Texas. Paul ran for president in 2008 and 2012, with a focus on civil liberties, ending the wars, and exposing the dangers of the Federal Reserve System. 
He authored bills seeking to audit and end the Federal Reserve System, which received very little mainstream political support. This was also around the time of the burgeoning Tea Party movement in the United States. Despite the mainstream media's best attempts to silence the movement behind Ron Paul, he was extremely popular on college campuses and with veterans who resonated with his anti-war stance. Paul's book, In the Fed, built on the work of G. Edward Griffin and made the case for shuttering the financial institution. The books, presidential campaigns, and speeches helped inspire a new generation of activists focused on ending the influence of bankers on American politics. For several years in the early 2010s, activists around the United States held marches and rallies at the Federal Reserve banks across the country. Also around this time, Americans were in the early days of recovering from the 2008 financial crisis, which was also caused by these same banks. People all around the world were impacted by the shady decisions made by the bankers. As people lost their homes and their savings, they began to look for answers. In September 2011, activists launched the Occupy Wall Street movement and New York City's Zuccotti Park. Within a month, there were similar Occupy protests taking place in hundreds of cities across the United States and in more than 900 cities in 82 countries. The activists in each city had a varying list of demands, but by and large, people were upset about the power and influence of financial institutions on their lives. Some were specifically focused on the use of subprime loans, which played a major role in the 2008 financial crisis. And many were outraged that the big banks were seen as too big to fail, while the taxpayer was left to pay the cost of the crisis. Some participants also focused on getting money out of politics, while others were focused on inequality in housing and jobs. Overall, while the movements had stark differences, they also had similar objectives. In fact, some members of the End the Fed movement launched an Occupy the Fed campaign with hopes of inspiring people to occupy the Federal Reserve banks around the country. Unfortunately, alliances between the Tea Party, and the Fed, and Occupy crowds were rare. As with many activist movements, it wasn't long before the original messages of the Tea Party and Occupy were watered down, co-opted, and eventually shut down. In the case of Occupy, all of the encampments around the world had been cleared from the parks by January 2012. The Tea Party movement was quickly diluted and swallowed up by the mainstream Republican Party, and Ron Paul's and the Fed movement mostly died with his failed second presidential run. While there are still many people who support Ron Paul and his call to end the Federal Reserve, the issue has taken a backseat in the age of culture wars. One of the most remarkable things of the past decade was witnessing the rise of Occupy Wall Street on one end of the phony left-right spectrum and end the Fed uh, slash the Tea Party movement on the other side of the controlled left-right spectrum. And these two movements, at base, the core of what these two movements were and what the original activists uh, involved in those movements were advocating for were very similar in a lot of key respects. These were not highly politically partisan movements at their base at the beginning. They were quickly taken over and co-opted and deflected by the old political partisan hacks in order to deflect them from the core issue that was at the base of both Occupy Wall Street and the Fed were both trying to target the banking system and the monetary system, which became an issue that I think Ron Paul acted as the lightning rod for that issue in the 2008 political uh, election uh, cycle in the United States. Um, but that was, a, that was a recognition, especially during the time of the 2008 banking crisis, that there is something fundamentally wrong with the system as it has been structured. And that realization 
is truly one of the most revolutionary uh, potentialities that certainly in U.S. history, but really in world history, when the population starts to become highly interested in the monetary question, that is when things get very politically volatile. We can look back to the populist movement at the the late 19th, early 20th century uh, in the United States that was advocating for bimetallism, recognizing that the gold standard that the uh, U.S. was on at that time was actually the cross of gold in William Jennings Bryan's uh, famous formulation, the, to which the public would be nailed. And uh, people were arguing, for example, for se- free silver, and this would be the, the way to open up the monetary base and so that uh, the average person could part- participate. That kind of insight is truly revolutionary. And that's why the populist movement of the turn of the 20th century had to be denigrated. And that's why the populist movements of the 21st century were quickly uh, derailed and basically scuttled off into side issues. So it is extremely important that the populist movements of the 21st century started out fundamentally questioning the monetary uh, base on which our society functions. And obviously, I, I, I don't think this is uh, this takes much reasoning. I think we can quickly understand exactly why the people in charge of this system would want to deflect people from pursuing that avenue of inquiry. The Federal Reserve System is the model for many of the central banks around the world today. In fact, the vast majority of nations in the world operate within the central banking system. Forensic historian Richard Grove explains how the Rothschilds exported the central banking system around the world and eventually played a role in the creation of the international financial organizations like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the Bank for International Settlements. Like the royalty was thousands of years old power. But this new central bank thing was a whole new thing. And they needed money over there at the royal place. A whole bunch of other countries needed money too. And so this group had figured it out. They got this international banking. I don't want to call it a cartel, but it's a dynasty. Now, they closed down their, they started in Germany. And they closed down their German office a couple years before World War I. So during World War I, no Rothschild. In fact, I don't think the bank opened until later in the 20th century back in Germany. So they kind of spread out. And in the time that they spread out, you had the immediate creation here in this country, the Federal Reserve System. And then around the time of World War II, uh, you had the Bank for International Settlements, which was Montague Norman from the Bank of England and Helmar Horace Greeley Schacht, who was Hitler's banker, but he was born in Brooklyn. That's the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland. And from there, they create the IMF, the World Bank. But these are all creatures, not just from Jekyll Island. These are creatures of Rhodes's last will and testament. So the working groups, the media control, the financial control, it's been conglomerated, distilled, and condensed over the last 120, 120 years since Rhodes died. With the launch of the Bretton Woods system in 1944, two organizations were created, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Ostensibly, these globalist organizations loan out funds to impoverished or developing nations in the name of defeating poverty or exporting democracy. However, as noted in the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins, these institutions often hand out loans to nations with the intent of seizing the natural resources and minerals if a nation cannot repay the debt. The World Bank itself has been dominated by international bankers and members of the roundtable groups, including the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. 
In the wake of World War I, another powerful institution was created in Basel, Switzerland, the Bank for International Settlements, the Central Bank of Central Banks. The BIS was originally created to process the World War I reparations from Germany. The BIS also helped provide liquidity to European governments during economic instability. Although the U.S. Federal Reserve did not join the BIS until 1994, as of 2022, 63 central banks have joined. In the book, The Tower of Basel, the shadowy history of the secret bank that runs the world, British journalist Adam Lebor outlines the history of corruption and scandal at the heart of the BIS. Lebor details how the BIS had countries assign their gold reserves to BIS accounts. The BIS would also process payments between countries. This made the BIS an ATM for many nations, including Hitler's Germany during World War II. Lebor outlines how the BIS helped process payments for Hitler, which allowed the Third Reich to flourish and finance its war efforts. Lebor also examines the collaboration between Swiss bankers and Nazis in his previous book, Hitler's Secret Bankers. The BIS is also essentially immune from all banking regulation and international laws. It is seen as an independent financial entity for central bankers, run by central bankers, and virtually self-governing. Due to the BIS being located in Switzerland, it is also protected by the secretive Swiss banking laws. We don't have the space in this format to fully expound upon the tangled web of history weaved by the IMF, the World Bank, and the BIS. However, it is crucial to understand the role played by national central banks, as well as the impact of the international banking institutions. This is even more important as we shift into the age of digital currency and new powerful financial instruments. Central Bank Digital Currencies As banking and finance have become increasingly digitized, new ways of banking are being dreamt up. One of these tools, which will become more familiar in the coming years, is an abstract, unassuming financial instrument which has the potential to be an unseen force which coerces people to act in ways which serve the system rather than their own interests. The terms social impact finance, social impact bonds, social impact investing, pay for success, or simply impact investing, describe a specific investment strategy that claims to focus on benefiting society or the environment in a positive way in addition to reaping financial gains. A social impact bond is a contract with the public sector or governing body in which the institution pays for better social outcomes and passes on the savings to social impact investors. In this way, social impact bonds are not traditional bonds since repayment and return on investment are dependent on achieving a desired social outcome. If the investors and institutions fail to achieve said outcomes, they receive neither a return or repayment of the principal investment. These types of investments are part of a growing trend where corporations seeking to rebrand themselves spend large amounts of money to prove their efforts. In this way, companies can claim to be expanding their social responsibility and increasing their involvement in community and social issues. One specific method for measuring the success of these programs is to base them on environmental, social, and governance criteria. This so-called ESG investing is also sometimes referred to as sustainable investing, responsible investing, or socially responsible investing. The practice has become an increasingly popular way to promote the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. However, there are major concerns about how this sort of scheme could play out. Let's imagine a social impact investor actually wanted to bet that elementary children will fail and not achieve higher grades. In that situation, an investor might be incentivized to discourage positive outcomes 
and instead seek a profit by encouraging negative outcomes. If this sounds preposterous, remember that in the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, investors were using financial tools to make profits off the losses and bankruptcy of individual homeowners. Freddie Mac prevented households from being able to take advantage of today's mortgage rates and then bet on it. Skeptics of social impact investing fear that these tools could remain invisible to most people while directly affecting their lives. When combined with social credit scores, social impact finance could lead to a dystopian world where billionaires and corporate executives place bets on who can pay their bills. This could also see a system where those on welfare or other assistance programs would be pressured or socially engineered towards lifestyles preferred by the social impact investors. One of the most immediate tools being announced by the international banking sector is known as central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. The technology is still yet emerging at the time of this film, but what we do know is that dozens of governments around the world have announced their support for some form of digital currency to be issued by the central banks of each nation. These CBDCs would be held in a digital wallet by every citizen of the nation. The details and specifics will differ nation to nation, but ultimately it will involve the elimination of the use of cash and the implementation of a digital currency system where the government is capable of monitoring every transaction. It's important to note that while many of these projects will likely use blockchain technology in one capacity or another, they are not cryptocurrencies. The major difference between the two being a focus on decentralization and privacy, which were essential concepts in the early days of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. In late 2021, Augustine Karstens, general manager of the Bank for International Settlements, began speaking in favor of the use of digital currencies, stating that central banks should take advantage of the efficiency of digital currencies. Coming from the general manager of the Central Bank of Central Banks, that's a pretty big endorsement. And shortly after Karsten's statements on efficiency, the BIS and the central banks of Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, and South Africa agreed to test the use of digital currencies for cross-border transactions. The BIS Innovation Hub say they are attempting to develop, quote, shared platforms for cross-border transactions using multiple central bank digital currencies. In a 2020 talk titled Cross-Border Payment, A Vision for the Future, Karstens gave a peek behind the curtain, detailing exactly how the bankers see CBDCs being used. We don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. A key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Karstens views CBDCs as a tool for eliminating privacy and for central bankers to force citizens to use currency exactly when, where, and how they are told. This is the next stage in the bankers' plot to dominate and profit off of all facets of society. While what we have described here may seem fantastic or unbelievable, rest assured, the bankers have infected all aspects of our world. Even if you are not ready to see the central bank digital currencies staring you in the face, we have more than enough evidence of the criminal acts of the banking class. The banks have profited from or funded drug trafficking and countless bloody conflicts around the world. HSBC has been implicated in allowing drug cartels to pour money into their banks. 
Wachovia and Bank of America have also been linked to money laundering for drug cartels. Whichever angle you choose to look at this situation from, the banking cartel has clearly had an overwhelmingly negative impact on the planet. Not to mention that the people running these banks clearly have ulterior motives and plans which are guiding their decisions. What can we do to break away from the chains of the banks and the families who run them? Solutions What can we do to break free from the clutches of the nearly all-pervasive banking system? Is it even possible to live a normal life without participating in the banking system? For starters, it is absolutely possible to live a fulfilling life without submitting to the banks. The reality is that if we continue to use the banks, we are condoning their actions by participating in their corrupted system. If we aim to live in line with our values and principles, then we ought to support institutions which align with our values and boycott those that do not. Not only is it important to boycott the banks on principle, it's also necessary because participating in the bank systems also supports other projects you might not approve of. For example, with fractional reserve banking, you deposit $1,000 into your bank and they only hold a fraction, say 10%, and the rest they invest in all kinds of projects. This could be surveillance projects, pipelines on indigenous lands, or partnering with the foundations and NGOs on nefarious schemes. The point is, you have no say in how your money is used. If you want to have a say in how your money is spent and you need to use a financial institution, try starting with a credit union or a building society. Typically, these organizations are locally focused and customers are members who can vote how funds are used. For those who are ready to abandon the banking system altogether, research the boycott and divest from the bank movements. In the years since the Occupy movement launched, activist organizations have launched coordinated divest campaigns with hundreds of people closing their bank accounts at once. This might not be easy for everyone, and it might involve making some changes in your life to meet the logistical challenges, but it is possible. We should take note of how difficult it has become to live a life without a bank account or a credit card. If you are looking for ways to get off the fiat currencies of government, then study alternatives like private cryptocurrencies or precious metals like gold and silver. As noted earlier, there is a distinct difference between privacy coins like Monero and a CBDC. Cryptocurrencies are by no means a panacea, but for the moment, they do offer an opportunity to transact value anywhere in the world nearly instantaneously without banks or governments. Finally, as the concept of money and currency evolves, it might be time for communities to pursue the creation of new currencies altogether. This could be digital in the form of a new crypto token, or it could even be a physical currency backed by a commodity. Local freedom cells could create currencies that could be traded within an emerging alternative economy. The point is that we need new forms of exchanging value and trading goods that are not dependent on or supportive of the banksters. Breaking free of the financial prison they are attempting to erect is absolutely necessary if we wish to see the end of the pyramid of power. To learn more about the banking cartel, we suggest reading The Rothschilds, The Financial Rulers of Nations by John Reeves, The World's Banker, The History of the House of Rothschild by Neal Ferguson, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve by G. Edward Griffin, Tower of Basel, The Shadowy History of the Secret Bank that Runs the World by Adam Libor. We also recommend watching The Century of Enslavement by James Corbett.